And I want to talk with you today about expectations. What are your expectations in life? Uh, Do you expect to survive? Do you expect to be healthy? What do you expect to get out of life? And what do you expect from God? How do you expect God to work? There's lots of times that we can think of when our own expectations have been too small or too narrow, or other times when our expectations were too big, right? Sometimes you'll order something at a restaurant and it arrives and and you think, well, that's not what I was expecting. I can think of uh, a number of times when my expectations have been inaccurate. Uh, One was when Twitter came out. You guys know what Twitter is, right? I remember when Twitter first arrived, I was a journalist at the time, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll check this little thing out with, the, with this little Tweety bird on it and see what this is. And so I signed up for an account, and I tried really hard for like three days. And at the end of the three days, I was like, this is ridiculous. This is never going to catch on. I mean, why in the world would anyone even care about this, right? And now Twitter, as ridiculous as I still think it is, affects world politics, right? You've got politicians tweeting things that affect world politics. You've got revolutions that start with people tweeting. Unbelievable. It was so much bigger than my expectations. A few other times in history that people's expectations have been grossly Inadequate. You may have heard this story about an executive from the DECA record label. In 1962, he sat down and auditioned a, a little band. They played 15 songs for him back to back. And here's what he wrote afterwards, not to their agent. He said, not to mince words, Mr. Epstein, but we don't like your boy's sound. Groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars particularly are finished. The Beatles have no future in show business. Well, sadly for that guy, his expectations were a little bit too small. I'll give you one other one. In 1976, there was a retired electronics executive by the name of Ronald Wayne. Ronald Wayne met these two high school kids who were a little bit crazy and they wanted to get this company started. So he actually helped them with some founding documents. And in exchange, they gave him 10% ownership. Uh, these two guys, their names were Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And they gave him 10% ownership in the company that he helped them get going. And he sold his 10% ownership for $800. You know how much 10% of Apple is worth today? About $60 billion. Okay, this guy's expectations for Apple computer were a bit too small. Well, often our expectations with God are also too small. And that's our big idea today, greater expectations. When I expect that God will only work in the ways that I've known in my past, I miss the better work that he's doing right now. When I expect, well, you know, this is the way God worked in my life in the past. I remember this real great mountaintop experience I had, and and we just keep waiting for God to replicate and duplicate that exact same experience. We miss out on what he's actually doing right now. 
In John chapter 9, and we're going to read a story, we're going to see that the Pharisees, once again, they miss what God Almighty is doing right in front of their eyes. He's doing miracles, and they're missing it because they're hung up on two very small expectations of theirs. First of all, they think, well, God would never heal on the Sabbath, even though God's word never says that. And secondly, they think that if someone is sick, if someone's born blind, they must have sinned, and so they deserve it. So why would God heal them? Neither of these things are found in God's word, but this is what the Pharisees expected. And they were so wrapped up in their expectations that they missed the work of God right in front of their eyes. You could put it this way. Are my expectations trapped in the narrowness of how God once worked in the past... Or am I living in the bigness of God's nature and promises? God's nature and promises uh, should be the foundation of our expectations. You see, on the one hand, the first half of this statement, it wouldn't be true without the second half. Our expectations should be harnessed. They should have some boundaries it shouldn't be, well, you know, you know, God might, whatever I feel like God might do. No, there are boundaries for our expectations, but you know what the boundaries are? God's nature as revealed in his word and God's promises as revealed in his word. But very often within those very expansive and broad and unpredictable boundaries, we create much smaller boundaries and we often don't realize that we're doing it. We just think, well, God worked this way in the past or this is how I'd like to see God work. And so we miss what he's actually doing right now. I've seen this a lot in Prescott. We've been here for about five and a half years now, my wife and I have. And, uh, you know, the median age in Prescott is 54.8. So uh, half of the people in this town are older than 55. And you get a lot of folks who, who come here. And, and, and as we've been here, we've met a number of folks who will come to Prescott and they'll check out a church. And what they're looking for is a duplication of what they experienced 15 years ago in California or somewhere else. And after two or three years, they'll realize, well, this church isn't exactly like the way God worked in the past. So they'll go to another church. And sure enough, that church also isn't like the way God worked in the past. So they'll go to another church. And sure enough, that church isn't the way God worked in the past. And I don't mean to be hard on anyone because we all limit the way God works in our own ways. But what they're doing is they're saying, we want God to work in the narrowness of how he used to work. And as a result, they're missing the way he's working right now. Here's another example of this. A couple months ago, Pastor Tom was preaching, and and he was preaching about David. And and remember when David fought Goliath, uh, King Saul said, here's my armor, put this armor on. Because it was expected, if you're going to go fight, you have to have armor on. And remember the armor was too big for David? He was like a little guy at the time, and it was dwarfing him and weighing him down. And one of the points Pastor Tom made was... um, don't wear someone else's armor. In other words, you've seen God work on a certain pattern in someone else's life, and so it's easy to think, well, it's going to look the same in my life. Don't get hung up on the pattern of how he worked in someone else's life. Instead, anchor yourself in God's promises and in his nature. Again, this is all coming from our text today where the Pharisees are so trapped in the narrowness of how they 
want to see God work and expect to see him work that they miss what he's actually doing. Today's claim, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Light reveals. And and as we get into this text today, I want to encourage you in your heart. Will you from your heart pray to God, God, where my eyes are blind, will you reveal to me? Will you be the light of the world to me? Where, where there's darkness in my life, Jesus, I want to believe in you as the light of the world. And that's a question for you. Where is there darkness in your life right now? Maybe it's darkness like this blind man's darkness that you can't see ahead of you. You want to see the next step, but you can't see it. It's just dark. In that darkness, will you turn to Jesus and believe in him as the light of the world? Ask Jesus to help you believe in him as the light of the world. Maybe it's the darkness of evil. We're going to see a theme in our text today that darkness correlates with sin, with evil, with being separated from God. Have you maybe been sinned against by a spouse or somebody else? Or maybe there's a sin that has has taken root in your own life, some sort of addiction, and you don't want it there. You know it's not good, but it's there, and there's a darkness in your life. Will you, will you today, in that area, say, Jesus, I want to know what it means that you're the light of the world. I want you to light up that darkness in my life. And, you know, light casts out darkness. When light comes in, the darkness leaves. And you can say, Jesus, I, I need you as the light of the world in my life. We're going to kind of see this idea, uh, the kind of three things here. Uh, in fact, you might want to write this down. I didn't put it on your notes. It's that, you know, the light of the world. First of all, we need to pray that God opens our eyes to see the light. And then we need to pray for hearts that believe in Jesus as the light. And then we need to have feet that step out and follow and obey. We see this consistent theme of just the simplicity of trust Jesus and obey. Trust him and obey. And of having eyes that are open to see him versus eyes that are closed by our own pride, thinking that we don't need him. Maybe the darkness in in your life is the darkness of death or lifelessness or sickness like this blind man had. When Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's implying that he is the source of life. Do you find yourself in the darkness of death or sickness? Perhaps you need the light of life, the light of the world. Well, let me give you a little context as we get into our story today. We have looked so far in our I Am series at Jesus' claim when he said, I am the bread of life. We found that in John chapter 6. And when Jesus said he was the bread of life, it happened about one year before his crucifixion. So Jesus says he's the bread of life. He makes this crazy claim that he's the nourishment that we all need. And then he proves it with a miracle, right? He feeds 5,000 people on the spot from just five loaves of bread. And we saw the neat parallelism that a year later, Jesus would be sitting with his disciples in an upper room the night before he was crucified. And he would say, take this bread, it's my body broken for you. And we also looked at the story where Jesus said, I am the resurrection in the life. Not just I perform resurrections, but I am the resurrection. And this happened just a few weeks before he was crucified. And in that story, John chapter 11, Jesus proves it by raising 
a dead man, Lazarus, who had been in his ancient casket for four days. And Jesus raises him from the dead to prove that his statement is true. Well, in our story today, we're going to see that once again, Jesus makes this big claim and people question it. And then Jesus proves it by performing a supernatural out of this world, defying the laws of physics and human medicine miracle. And the story really starts in John chapter 8. And we're just going to look at a few highlights in John chapter 8. Verse 12 is the first highlight. Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So essentially, we could preach a whole sermon on John chapter 8. But essentially what happens in John chapter 8 is Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In other words, I provide all of the warmth. I provide all of the life. Everything that's good comes from me. And the Pharisees in John eight thirteen, they more or less just say, prove it. You know, it's like kids on a playground. Like, oh yeah? You know, show us. That's a ridiculous claim. Prove it. Well, Jesus is going to prove it in John chapter 9. But before he does, things escalate in John chapter 8. Jesus in verse 23 is going to say, I am a number of more times. Now in the Hebrew, a lot of you know this, I am was a phrase for God. And it was a phrase that only God would use. The Hebrews at this time wouldn't, wouldn't use the words that Jesus used. It was blasphemy to say, I am. I am that I am. That's, that's who God is. And things keep escalating in chapter 8 with the, the Pharisees and Jesus until verse 58, where, they, where Jesus just says, before Abraham was, I am. Well, at that, they all picked up stones to do what they commonly did at that time. And that is start chucking stones at the person until they fall down and then keep throwing stones at them until they're dead. Okay. It was the way the culture worked at that time. Everyone picks up stones to kill Jesus because Jesus has clearly, clearly, clearly stated that he is the one true God. If you're ever talking with someone, they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Just read through the gospel of John with them. It's very clear from Jesus' words and his interaction with the other people that he claims to be God over and over. And not just a God, as our Mormon friends who are not Christians believe, but the one true God. The Old Testament is very clear. There's one true God. Jesus came as the Messiah who was predicted in the Old Testament, and he says, I am the one true God. So Jesus has just been uh, in a mob of people who picked up stones to kill him. And the end of John chapter eight tells us he slips out. You know, he kind of miraculously slithers through him, right? No one can grab him and he's gone. And that's where John chapter nine picks up. This could be moments later. Here we are in John chapter nine, verse one, as he went along, So Jesus just escaped his death. Why were people trying to kill him? Because he claimed God. How did the claim that he's God start? He said, I'm the light of the world. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Now, notice the closeness of this question. This is like how I ask questions to my children. I give them two options, right? Do you guys want to go to bed or take a bath? Those are your only two options in the universe, okay? Those are your two options. And the disciples are in a limited, narrow theology, just like the Pharisees, where where their theology is so small that it's, well, if he's blind, either he must have sinned or his parents must have. A lot of Christians still believe this. We don't write it on paper, but we get in a car accident or we get cancer or our kid makes a bad decision. We think, did I sin? Or did my child sin? Why is this judgment coming on me? Well, we're going to see that, you know, well, let's just keep reading. Jesus answers their question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Okay? Now, like a lot of theology that's wrong, the disciples' narrow assumption here is half true, but it's incomplete. The half-truth is that all sickness, all blindness, all maladies in our life originate in the original sin in the Garden of Eden. None of us would die, none of us would have cancer if it were not for sin with a capital S, that our world is infected and cursed and broken. But where the disciples were wrong is that thinking specifically when you have a sickness, it's because of your specific sin Jesus says here that's not the case in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, does that mean, okay, so God's like this cruel, twisted torture of a God who said, I'm going to make this guy blind so that I can glorify myself? I, I don't believe so. I believe what we're seeing here is a microcosm or a small picture of what God is doing with all human history and all of humanity. And that is what Satan meant for evil, to curse us, to kill, to divide and destroy, God turns for good to those who believe in him. If you look at the story of Job, God doesn't send the sickness into Job's life, Satan does. If you look at Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, it's a messenger of Satan sent to torment me. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to one of the seven churches and he says, I warn you, great persecution is going to come your way and the devil will put many of you in jail and persecute you. The evil in our life comes from the evil one. He just loves it when we think it comes from God, who wants to help, who wants to heal, who's in the process of redeeming this broken world. And and so I I wonder, where's their blindness in your life? Where's their sickness in your life? There may or may not be an immediate healing for you like there is for this blind man. But the point of it is, there may also, the point of it is that if you will trust God in that weakness, he will display his goodness and he will turn it. For your good. So your sickness doesn't mean God is punishing you. Maybe some of you just needed that today. And you're free to go. But the rest you have to stay. Okay? So, and then, then uh, well, there's, there's a lot more here. But let's just keep moving on. Okay? Verse 5. While I am in this world, I am the light of the world. Now, interestingly, and man, I... I 
I wanted to do this one, I'm the light of the world, do like a 10-part series on this one, but it's, I just have to limit myself, okay? Here's what's cool about I am the light of the world, okay? John the disciple, you know, was one of Jesus' three inner disciples. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. Later on, at the end of life, John is going to be banished onto a prison island like Napoleon Bonaparte was, and from that prison island, he's going to write the book of Revelation. Well, this same John begins his gospel that we're reading in chapter 1 by saying this in John chapter 1 verse 4, in Jesus Christ was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. So so when John starts his gospel in chapter 1, this idea of Jesus being the light of the world, it's so stuck in his mind and his heart that that's how he starts it off. And you know, the longer you follow Christ, the more you start to see, man, the world is so dark. I mean, you look at Africa, you look at the Middle East, You look at the Ukraine right now. You look at the land we live in and how deceived so many people are. And you just realize there's there's great darkness. But the light came down into the world. And for all who believe in him, he gives everlasting life. What does it mean to be the light of the world? It means there's no place on the world that has light without Jesus. It means there is no light in your life apart from Jesus. It means that everything is darkness if not for Jesus. It means that he's the only light that anyone ever sees by. He's the only good from which any good in our lives finds its source of origin. Just like James chapter 1 says, every good and perfect gift, everything that's good in your life, comes down from the Father of lights. So here's Jesus' claim. I am the light of the world. It's a claim to being God. It's a claim to being the only Savior of humanity. And it's a claim to being the only light who sustains and guides us. So again, I ask you, where is there darkness in your life right now? And we're going to see that like all his other I am claims, now Jesus is going to show that his claims are not mere words. Let's look at verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground... Sounds weird. We're going to explain why. Made some mud with the saliva. It's a great word. And put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told the blind man. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This is a cool, like, spring-fed deal that Hezekiah had made. So the man went and washed. Just love this sentence. So you, you might want to write down this sentence. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. The man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, why in the world do you think Jesus spit and made mud? Couldn't he have just said to the blind man, hey, go, your sight is restored. Well, we know he could have because he had, he's already done that. In Jesus' earthly ministry at this point, he's encountered blind men who he said, um, as you believe it will be done unto you. And they say, I believe. And bam, they see again. Okay, so Jesus didn't have to do this deal with the mud. Jesus is being intentional. He got some purpose for this. I'm going to give you three reasons why, okay? The the first is the implication of being the light of the world is to give life. Remember how God created life in the beginning? 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that Almighty God must have bent down and he gets some dust, some dirt, and he starts to shape it. And then he breathes into it and man becomes a living thing. So Jesus, whose claim, I am the light of the world, doesn't just mean he's like a tanning bed, right? It means he's the sun. He's the source. He's the giver of life. What a a beautiful, beautiful parallel. The God who knelt down and picked up dirt to create Adam and Eve kneels down and picks up dirt and uses it to give life to eyes that are dead. Here's another reason why. Because it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath, and by the narrow rules of the Pharisees, who don't expect God to work according to his nature and promises, which are to heal and redeem and restore, but instead expect God to work within the narrowness of their expectations. And what are their expectations? Their expectations are that on the Sabbath, it is illegal to make clay. On the Sabbath, it is illegal spiritually to mix water with dirt that is work. That's not in the Bible. That's not God's rule. That's their narrow rule that they had added on to it. And it's almost like Jesus intentionally, spitefully breaks their rule. And we're going to see more of that as we keep going. And by the way, this wasn't the first time Jesus healed on the Sabbath. If you look at John chapter 5, there was a, a lame man in Bethsaida who Jesus also healed on the Sabbath. Third reason I think Jesus did this, we see in verse 7... The beginning of a theme in Jesus' interaction with the blind man. And it's this theme, trust and obey. If you believe me in your heart, then let's see your feet start moving. So instead of just giving an immediate healing, Jesus puts the mud on, which might have seemed a little weird. And then he gives a command, go and wash in this pool. Jesus gives the blind man an opportunity to demonstrate his faith. This is what baptism is. After you place your faith in Christ as an adult, if you've never been baptized, that's a normal thing in Scripture. Your baptism doesn't save you, but it's it's normal. It's what Scripture says to do. If you really believe in your heart, then move your feet Find some water and have someone baptize you. And we would love to do that if you've never been baptized. Jesus gives the blind man an opportunity to demonstrate his faith with some actions. I just love those words. So the man went and washed. Have you gone and washed? I mean, is there something that Jesus has revealed to you? Have you done it? says, you you don't need that pornography in your life. And if you're really serious about it, you know, you can just get rid of your internet access at your house. He says, you know, you don't need that jealousy in your life. You don't need that bitterness in your life. You say, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus, I believe you. But have your feet moved toward the pool. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Okay, verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. You know, that's just impossible. But he himself, the blind guy, formerly blind guy now says, no, it's me. I am the man. 
<laughs> That's a great quote. I am the man. I can see some teenagers just taking that as a life verse. <laughs> What's your life verse? John 9, 9. I am the man. Okay, verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replies, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Footnote here, Jesus wasn't the only one who broke the narrow rules of the Sabbath. The blind man also did. As he stumbled, still blind, toward the pool, he was breaking the pharisaical rules of the Sabbath. He wasn't letting the narrowness of their expectations of how God would work limit what God actually wanted to do. I mean, I don't want to offend any theologians, but it's interesting to think, what if the man hadn't gone and washed? What if he just went home and took a nap with his little mud mask on, you know? Would he have missed the miracle that Jesus did and all he had to do was walk a little? How many things do we miss in our lives? Because when Jesus says, go wash, we think, well, Jesus, I believe you, but I'm not going to go. How many things do we miss? I've been really praying about this lately because there's this story in Matthew where the disciples try and cast this demon out of a girl and they can't. And, and Jesus comes to him and he says, uh, it's because of your lack of faith. And it's clear in the interaction that Jesus wanted them to be able to cast this demon out. But their own faith, listen to this, their faith kept them from God's plan for their life. Their lack of faith kept them from God's good plan for their life. And it's like, God, how often do I just, you have something for me and I just don't believe it. And the only thing that's limiting me from what God has in my life is my own lack of faith to just step out, go to the pool and wash. Let's continue in verse 12. Where is this man? Where's Jesus? They asked him. I don't know, he says. So they brought to the Pharisees the one who had been blind. Verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud, important words for the Hebrew audience, and opened the man's eyes, which is also work, was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees, parentheses, caught up in their own narrowness of how they expect God to work, also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Right? Wouldn't you know, a, 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 like, uh, an objective person would be like, wow, that's incredible, right? But what do the Pharisees see? Two broken rules. Jesus broke a rule, and you broke a rule, and you went and washed. How dare you? Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus elsewhere says, who created the Sabbath? You know, it's kind of like when you've got a bunch of little kids that you're watching and you give them some rules and they're like, hey, you broke the rule. Well, yeah, I, I made the rules. OK, they're for you guys. All right. Others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs so they were divided? Verse 17, then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Interestingly, at this point, this man, he has believed in Jesus, but he has not yet believed that Jesus is Messiah. That's going to change pretty soon. Verse 18, they still didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for his parents. So here's the Pharisees. All right, go get this guy's parents. You know, this is ridiculous. We're being lied to. Let's get his parents. Let's find out. Is this your son? They ask once they get the parents brought in. 
Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Verse 20. Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And John tells us his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be cast out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. It's hard for us to understand in the the kind of economy we live in. But in an economy like this, if you were cast out of the synagogue, it would affect your business. It would affect your trade. If you were a carpenter, you did work for other people in the synagogue. If you got cast out of the synagogue, you lose your customer base. So his parents, they're kind of like, you know, don't ask us. Verse 24, so a second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know I was blind, but now I see. If you look on your outline, point number one there says, the blind man didn't have to preach a sermon to point people to Jesus. He simply told them how his life was changed. He simply told them how his life was changed. You know... God calls us after we trust in him to go and make disciples. And part of that is telling other people about Jesus. And we get intimidated because we think, well, that must mean knocking on a door. You know, it must mean just these different stereotypes that we have. But telling people about Jesus is really easy if you just tell them where you were blind and how you now see. Just tell him, you know, I was the most selfish dude. I still am a very selfish dude, okay? But I was the most selfish dude you can imagine. And after, since I've trusted in Jesus, he's put in me a love for other people. I actually care about other people. Tell me what God has actually done for you. Just, just start there. And in our culture, that's actually one of the greatest values right now. Is not objective truth, but is personal experience. So your, your personal experience right now speaks a lot louder than objective truth, and incidentally, it's a, it's a biblical way to share your faith. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered. Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. There's a little application in here at the end. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Of all the people in the area, who do you think really knew about blindness? This guy. 
right? This guy wasn't an expert on everything. He wasn't an expert on Hebrew law, but he was an expert on being blind. He knew. I mean, he had surely sought out doctors. He had surely sought out whatever he could. And he knew that in all of history, there'd never been a story of someone who was born blind and then they're healed and received their sight. And it makes me wonder, where are you an expert? You might know parenting really well. You might know alcoholism really well. You might know uh, other addictions really well. You have a, a, a specialty. It might be a broken specialty like being blind. It might, be a, it might even just be your craft, your trade that you work at for a living. But, but God, there are things that you know that the average person doesn't know. And God can use that. God can use that in your life. To this they replied, verse 34, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? So here we see a parallel, the disciples' false theology. If, if the man was born blind, he must be a sinner. In fact, at this time, a lot of Pharisees believed, and there's some theologians who believe this today, that you can sin in the womb before you're born. You choose to be a sinner. And so they're like, you know, I mean, look at the pride of these guys. God's doing a miracle in front of them, and they're just judging the person who got healed because it doesn't line up with their narrow expectations. Now, again, our expectations should be within the boundaries of God's promises and his nature. But, but these guys are, are just way off, and they kick him out. They throw him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him. Do you notice that, that Jesus tracks down this guy, when he gets thrown out, have you maybe, as you've been seeking God, you've been trying to follow God, have you had religious people, even Christians, cast you out? If you have, Jesus He's looking for you. He has to track you down. He comes for you when the religious people cast you out. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Messiah? Who is he, sir? The man asked him, tell me so that I may believe. Jesus said, verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And remember one of our themes, belief, action. Lord, I believe. And if he really believes that Jesus is Messiah, God Almighty, come to save the world from its sin, what's he going to do? Worship him. Light of the world, you came down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Here I am to worship. It's the proper response when we realize who Jesus actually is. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Now, the interesting thing is that the blindness is a parallel for being a sinner, right? The Pharisees think they are not sinners. Clearly, they are. We all are. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim you can see your guilt remains. In other words, you are blind in the most important way. You are spiritually blind. The light of the world is blazing into your eyes and you can't even see it. 
because you're spiritually blind. So much meat in this story. I'm just going to give you guys a few points as we go. First is, I gave you already, that the blind man didn't have to preach a sermon to point people to Jesus. He simply told them how his life was changed. Give it a try. Start with the people who know you, where you've already got some equity and they trust you. Tell them how Jesus has changed your life. Just start there. Second, we saw in verse 35, when others reject you, Jesus pursues you. Do you need to know that today? You need to know that when others kick you out, when others hurl insults at you and throw you out, that Jesus tracks you down, that he pursues you, that he comes after you. Third, we see that following Jesus is as simple as trusting and obeying. Jesus puts a bunch of mud on your eyes and says, now go wash it off in this specific pool. Do you believe him? Will you obey him? What's the pool in your life? And what, which one do you need to pray for right now in your life? God, help me trust you or God, help me obey you <laughs> or help me both. Number four, humility that is admitting our flaws, opens the door for God to work. This was the case for the blind man. The blind man knew that he needed healing. He needed help. He needed a savior. And it opened the door for God to work. And at the exact same time, in the exact same story, this other group of people, their pride, their self-assurance, They're pretending, I have no flaws, I have no need, I don't need a healing, I don't need someone to help me. What does it do? It closes the door where God wants to work. God desires all people to come to salvation. He loves these Pharisees. He desires for them to turn from their sin, from their pride, and trust in him. But their pride blinds their eyes and it closes the door for God to work. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and it's one of these texts where I just have to trust the Holy Spirit that he knows which of these many things we've learned is for you today. It might have been just one one little verse in there, or maybe it is this big idea of, man, maybe the reason that I'm not seeing God do great things right now is that I'm looking for him to work the way he worked years ago or months ago, and he's working in a new way. Or maybe for you, it's this idea of, will I really trust Jesus and obey? Would you, guys, um, would you guys pray with me and give our hearts to God? Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our teacher. And I know that you're speaking in each of our hearts right now. And we want to take a, a moment in the quiet before we run back out into the rush of life and the busyness. Lord, whatever it is that you've revealed to each one of us, we, we want to kind of grab it and, and we want to really just put it in a safe place in our heart. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to get lost in the rush. Lord, there's a, there is darkness in each of our lives today. Darkness of sin, the darkness of sickness, darkness of loneliness. In all of those darknesses, Jesus, we turn to you right now and we believe in you as the light of the world. 
Jesus, we believe you opened the eyes of the blind. And Lord, I just pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts in here. That we'd step out and follow you. When you tell us to, to stumble around in the darkness towards a pool, that we just stumble as long as it takes because we believe you. That healing might not come as fast as we want, that change may not come as fast as we want, but Jesus, we believe you, and we're just stumbling toward that finish line, trusting in you, following in you, believing in you, obeying you. So Lord, as we go from here, we just seal that in our hearts. We trust you, and we will obey you. Jesus, we commit that to you today, and we, we pray it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.